Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another wonderful and exciting episode of the Anthology of Horror. I'm your host and narrator, Springheeled Jack, and we're going to get started today after just a few brief disclaimers. First of all, the show might offend you. If you're easily offended, please turn the show off and spare me the negative reviews on the podcast store, or the iTunes store, whatever the fuck you call it, uh, because you won't like the show. This is your first and final warning. Second, I use advertisements in this show that I do not own the rights to. They are the creative property of Rockstar Games. That is all. Come live the mystery! Cool off in our water sports park. I'll show your kids a great time. It's something they'll never forget and talk about for years to come, especially at therapy sessions. It's the place for magic and adventure. Leaving me free to shop and get lipo. Who's ready for the incredible Dribbles voyage? Jerry, can we come too? This is a journey you must undertake alone. It can be dark and scary, so shriek with delight. You wait and see. You'll be amazed. Fuck the suits on. Glory Hole Theme Park. Open every day till 3 a.m. The sun, giver of all life. The Mayans worship the sun. Then they disappeared without a trace. Don't let this happen to you. The fact is, if you spend time in the sun, you're almost certain to die. All leading medical practitioners have determined sun exposure causes cancer and heartburn. I'm an expert. Going in the sun is as dangerous as smoking or living too near a nuclear power station. Oh, no, not chemo again. No, never again with Tropicarcinoma. Keep out the sun's dangerous rays with Tropicarcinoma. It's a unique blend of coconut oil, zinc, aluminum, boron, magnesium, and other volatile metals to neutralize the sun's rays and form a chemical shield. It's just great for the skin and the IQ. Tropicarcinoma. I'm a lifeguard and I love Tropicarcinoma. I even coat my eyeballs and digestive tract. I'm white as a sheet and shooting blanks. I feel great about myself, and that's important. A friend of mine asked me, why spend time in the sun if it's dangerous and you don't want to tan? And I just laugh and try not to think about it. Tropicarcinoma. Give the sun a challenge. Alright guys, welcome back to another wonderful episode of the Halloween special edition of the Anthology of Horror. This first story is called I Walked the Labyrinth and Lived to Tell the Tale. And it's once again by the author that I've grown to love, Wound Licker. I'm no hero. That much will become obvious as you read my account. In fact, I'm a coward, the type who always takes the easiest path. Left to my own devices, I would never reach my full potential. In all honesty, I'm an average guy with a dull life, but the story I'm about to tell you almost defies belief. I don't know why this happened to me. Was I chosen, or is it all random? My enigmatic guide and benefactor offered me few answers. I often wonder why I walked out the other side when so many others remain trapped in that hellscape for all eternity. It's safe to say I suffer from survivor's guilt. Perhaps a medical professional could help me work through these negative thoughts, but how would I explain my horrific experiences within the supernatural realm? So in desperation, I will share my story here, in the hope of finding some empathy or understanding from those with an open mind. My story begins like so many others you've heard. I was down on my luck, unemployed and behind on my rent. 
In my desperation, I trawled through the help-wanted pages, finding little which didn't require experience or qualifications that I do not possess. My attention was drawn to an obscure ad in our local paper. You know the type. No details or company name, only a postal address and the offer of a suspiciously large remuneration for completing an unspecified job. I know what you're thinking, and you'd be right. I should have known it was too good to be true. The red flags were so fucking obvious, and deep down I did realize it was a risk, but I was in a bad place and at my wit's end. The address in the advertisement was located in a rundown part of town, and my internet searches brought up no results. I figured I'd go down there, and if it seemed fishy, I'd get the fuck out. No harm done. How fucking dumb could I be? My bus journey was non-eventful, as was the half-hour walk I made across the dilapidated business park full of derelict office buildings and empty cul-de-sacs. I'll confess that, was my, that, that my anxiety levels rose as I approached my apparent location, double-checking the address to make sure I had the right place. The building looked closer to an abandoned fortress than an office block, built from gray concrete in a brutalist style. I glanced upwards in awe to discover that the building didn't have a single visible window. I'd never seen anything like it, a structure so bleak and unimaginative, but at the same time oddly foreboding. There was no company signage or any indication of what was located there, only, only other than a small entrance with darkened windows and a faded street number hanging above it. That was it. The address from the ad. I felt a cold chill run through me as I gazed upon the darkened doorway. Looking back, I knew I should have turned around and walked away, but I'll admit to being intrigued. More than that, I was drawn in, perhaps by a power beyond my comprehension, a black magic capable of overcoming my primal fears. I walked forward slowly, pushing through the tinted swing doors and entering. What I discovered inside was an unremarkable reception area, poorly lit with chipped, tiled floors, worn-out furniture, and an appointment desk hidden behind frosted glass. After all the anticipation, this underwhelming little room was something of a disappointment. Still, I was here now, and so I thought I might as well see it through. The reception area was abandoned, and so I approached the desk, gently tapping on the frosted glass in the hope of gaining somebody's attention. A tense pause followed, and for a moment I thought the desk was unattended, but then I heard a low sigh emanating from the other side of the glass. And a moment later, the shutter opened to reveal the person who was inside. The woman who glared out at me looked like a parody from a 1950s sitcom. She was an elderly woman with a blue rinse in her hair, big framed glasses, and a scowl on her face that could turn milk. To say she wasn't happy to see me would be a gross understatement. What? She spat at me without even a trace of politeness. I was slightly taken aback by the frosty reception, and so it took me a moment to formulate a reply. Uh, I'm here about the ad in the paper. It said there's a position available. The receptionist sighed loudly and rolled her eyes before turning back to her computer terminal and aggressively typing into the keyboard. Name, she demanded without looking up from the screen. John Smith, I replied nervously. Now just for clarity's sake, my name isn't really John Smith, but I don't wish to reveal my true identity on this forum. And so this rather unimaginative alias will have to do. Her demeanor seemed to change somewhat after hearing my name. I wouldn't say she brightened me, but she did at least look up from her monitor and meet my eye. Ah, yes. Mr. Smith, my manager is expecting you. Now I was really confused and more than slightly concerned. Who was her boss and how the hell could he or she be expecting me? 
I hadn't phoned ahead or emailed for an appointment because neither was an option. I'd simply turned up at the location unsolicited, and there's no way they could have known I was coming. I said as much to the receptionist, and she reacted with annoyance. Are you saying I don't know my job? I'm telling you there's an appointment on the books. Now if you don't mind, my manager's waiting for you, and it would not be wise to keep him waiting. She pointed to the red door at the back of the reception area, a door which somehow I'd completely missed on my way in. I stared in disbelief at the doorway, feeling very uneasy, before I turned back to the aged receptionist, only to be met by a stone-cold glare as she continued to point. Well, she exclaimed impatiently. I didn't realize at the time, but this was probably my last opportunity to walk away. I suppose I rationalized it in my head in that moment. Sure, this was a weird and unsettling situation, but perhaps it was all just a big misunderstanding. The receptionist was old and cranky. Probably she'd just made a mistake, thinking there was an appointment when there wasn't one, and I must have missed the red door on the way in because I wasn't paying attention to my surroundings. Sure, I'd come this far, so why not pass through the mysterious red door and discover the truth? What harm could it do? As it turned out, I was entering a world of pain. The handle was ice cold when I reached out to turn it, slowly opening the heavy door, but when I walked inside, I was hit by a wave of intense heat. Still, the temperature was the least of my concerns as I surveyed the room, discovering a space very different to the run-down and sterile reception area. Instead of worn-out armchairs and scratched coffee tables, I found an extravagant study which wouldn't have looked out of place in a 19th century country manor. A soft red carpet lay beneath my feet, while before me sat a huge, solid oak desk covered with bizarre ornaments and oddities. Furthermore, the walls were adorned with shelves of leather-bound books, classical art style, and what appeared to be hunting trophies with the severed heads of various wild beasts mounted in a rather macabre display. I continued to explore the ample room, soon discovering the roaring open fire in the far corner, from which the intense heat was emanating. As spectacular and awe-inspiring as the room appeared, there was also something oddly unsettling about it. Within a few seconds, I began to feel paranoid, like I was being watched, and when I looked to the portraits and trophies on the wall, I could almost sense their dark eyes upon me, as if they were somehow alive and filled with malicious intent. I realized then that this may not be a safe place, and so reckoned I should probably leave. Slowly, I started to back out of the room, but then suddenly the door slammed shut behind me, making me jump. Jesus, I swore as I turned my head. I'm sorry, Mr. Smith, but you won't find Jesus here. I jumped once again higher this time, while simultaneously yelped aloud in shock, turning back towards the desk in time to see an enigmatic figure appear from the shadows. This turned out to be the man, if it is indeed a man, who would shape and control my terrifying experience over the coming hours and days, changing my life forever. The boss, whose name I'd never found out, is an unremarkable man to see at first glance. He appeared as a slight, elderly man in his 70s or 80s, with thinning hair, wrinkled skin, and a striking but comical white goatee beard. He was well-dressed in a finely tailored dress suit, complete with a waistcoat and a bow tie. When he spoke, his voice was soft, but his words carried a sinister undertone, especially given the bizarre circumstances. There was nothing overtly threatening about his appearance, but nevertheless I felt uneasy in his presence, as the hairs on the back of my neck stood on end. Mr. Smith, I presume, he asked. Yeah, that's me, I replied nervously, still wondering how he knew my name. It's a pleasure to meet you. Please take a seat. 
I glanced back at the shut door before reluctantly walking forward and taking a seat facing the solid oak desk. My mysterious host removed a crystal decanter and two glasses from a cupboard, pouring brown liquor before offering me a glass. Drink? I probably shouldn't, I replied. Please, I insist. You may find that you require some liquid courage for the challenges to come. I didn't like the sound of this, although suddenly I did want that drink, and so I reached out for the glass and raised it to my lips, pouring the strong alcohol down my throat. Now then, Mr. Smith, you've come in response to our advertisement, of course. Yes, I confirmed cautiously. I understand there's a job going. The man shook his head in the negative. A job? No, sir. I'm afraid there's been a misunderstanding. I have a dedicated team in place, and regrettably there are no permanent positions available. What I do have, however, is an exciting opportunity for a motivated young man such as yourself. A unique challenge, which will yield a substantial cash prize upon its completion. By this point, I was annoyed, but also intrigued. I'd come all this way for what seemed like a load of horse shit, but if there was even a chance of getting paid, I needed to hear him out. Okay, what do you mean by challenge? He paused for a moment, looking thoughtful before he gave his answer. Well, sir, we have a facility here on site, an interesting little space that we call the Labyrinth. The game is simple. You go in, and if you successfully negotiate the maze, you receive your prize. Oh, you mean it's like an escape room? I interjected. The man looked puzzled, frowning before he replied. Yes, I guess you could say it's something like an escape room. His explanation was far from convincing, and I was not sure, and I was now sure that this was total BS. I didn't know whether this cash prize was genuine or not, but I decided it wasn't worth the hassle. Thanks for the offer, sir, but I'm going to pass. He was clearly not happy at my refusal, although his smile didn't falter. I could see that there was simmering anger behind his eyes. I'm afraid it's already too late for that, Mr. Smith, he snorted. Now it was my turn to get angry. Who the hell did this guy think he was? I felt like giving him both barrels of a shotgun, but instead I simply stood up and raised my hands defensively. Look, man, I don't know what this is, but I'm leaving. Thanks for the drink. And I stood up and started walking away, still feeling his hard stare on the back of my head as I marched towards the door. But when I reached the exit, I found the door was still shut and there was no handle on the inside. I pushed against it with my shoulder, but had no luck. It was at this point that I began to panic. When I turned around, I was shocked to discover the old man standing directly behind me, his eyes upon me and his, his expression cold and emotionless. You need to let me out of here, I exclaimed. He didn't answer. Then I placed my shaking hand into my pocket to withdraw my cell phone. Do you want me to call the cops, I cried. Those things won't work in here, he answered coolly. I looked at the screen and saw he was right. I had no signal. Fuck shit, I swore. Suddenly, I saw red as I reached out and roughly grabbed the man by his jacket. Listen, old timer, I don't know what game you're playing, but you need to let me out of here or I'll kick your fucking ass. What happened next is still something of a blur in my memory. In an instant, the man before me was no longer frail and elderly. Instead, he transformed into something monstrous, a towering figure who stood over me, his eyes intense and filled with a murderous rage. With impossible strength, he tossed me across the room like I was nothing but a rag doll. My body crashed down hard on the floor, the pain shooting through me. I tried to stand, but my attacker was on me in an instant, pinning me down like a predator would do its prey, his eyes red with hatred and his teeth exposed as he spat out words of pure malice. Listen to me, you little shit, he screamed, his face only inches from my own. This is my house, and you'll follow my rules. You made a choice in coming here today, and now you want to back out? No chance. You've run away from every challenge ever in your life, but not any longer. 
You'll enter the labyrinth and face your demons. Otherwise, I'll rip you to shreds with my bare hands. Do you understand me, Mr. Smith? I gulped, looking into his predatory eyes and knowing that he was serious. My whole body shook and I struggled to speak through my quaking lips. Okay, I spluttered. My attacker smiled as he climbed off of me, instantly releasing me from his icy grip and returning to his harmless old man persona, even offering his hand to help me back to my feet. Well, Mr. Smith, I'm glad all that unpleasantness is behind us. Now, shall we proceed? He pointed towards a jet-black door at the back of the room, a door I was certain hadn't been there a moment before. I dreaded to think what horrors lay behind it, but I knew I had no choice but to go forward. I just hoped there would be a chance for escape or for me to seek help. My legs were still shaking as I followed my captor towards the ominous doorway, watching carefully as he opened it and motioned for me to enter. I didn't know what to expect once I passed through the black door, but I knew it wouldn't be good. I was, however, confused to find myself led through a mundane office space with rows of workers sitting in cubicles and diligently typing away at computers. My dedicated administrative team, the boss explained. We had some issues with discipline in the past, but thankfully we've all moved on. It was only then that I looked upon the workers as they collectively raised their heads to greet me. To my horror, I saw the pain and fear in their eyes and realized that their mouths were sewn shut, preventing them from crying out. Instead, they silently pled with me for help, but I was in such a state of shock that I could do nothing except swear, lower my head, and walk on. I could imagine the horrors these poor people must have suffered and feared that, the, and, and feared the same fate might await me. But soon we left the hellish room and the tortured souls trapped inside as my captor led me to yet another doorway, this one engraved with a bizarre runic symbols and constructed from an ivory-like material that I feared could be human bone. My captor placed his hand upon the door handle, pausing as he turned to face me and offer some last words of advice. This is it, Mr. Smith. You're on your own from this point forward. You'll find that the labyrinth is an unusual and dangerous place, unlike anywhere you visited before. Time passes differently on the other side, and many of the physical rules of our world do not apply. You'll have no need for your normal bodily functions to eat, sleep, shit, and piss. The whole experience will seem like a particularly vivid dream. But do not fall into complacency, Mr. Smith. The dangers you face on the other side are very real, as are any injuries or pain you may suffer. My final advice to you is this. Do not trust what you see, and remember that you're on your own. Good luck, Mr. Smith. I hope to see you again. His words were more sympathetic than I would have expected, although I certainly didn't like what I was hearing. I decided to make one last plea for my life. Please don't make me do this. The man's smile faltered ever so slightly, and he lowered his head as if in shame. I'm sorry, Mr. Smith, but there's no other way. Remember what I told you, and you might have a sporting chance. I thought about running, but it all happened so quickly that I couldn't. In an instant, the door was open, and my captor shoved me through, shutting it firmly behind him. In a panic, I turned back to the door, only to find it was no longer there. Instead, I was faced by a solid concrete wall. I slammed my fists against it, screaming until my knuckles were bloody and my lungs hurt. Defeated and exhausted, I fell to the floor and accepted my fate. I'd entered the labyrinth, and there was only one way out. Before I continue my tale of woe, it's worth trying to explain what exactly the labyrinth is, or at least to describe its characteristics. The labyrinth is not a maze of hedgerows or medieval-style dungeon. 
Instead, it takes the form of a modern hellscape, an endless maze of empty office rooms, ugly yellow walls, damp carpets, and buzzing fluorescent lights, all connected by dimly lit corridors and annexes of impossible length. I have no idea how big the labyrinth is, although it's clearly far larger than should be physically possible. And the boss was right. The rules of physics do not apply inside, and it's impossible to measure time. Not least because watches and electronic devices do not work here. The tedious and soulless design of the maze is at first unsettling, but in time the surroundings will drive you insane. But that's nothing compared to the hideous creatures and terrifying beings that occupy in the back rooms. The horrors which stalk the corridors and will use all methods at their disposal to draw you in or hunt you down. And that's what the labyrinth is, an endless tedium broken up by periods of intense terror, all leading to gradual loss of hope. My first steps through the labyrinth were daunting and depressing. I tried hard not to succumb to panic and despair after I'd recovered from my initial shock and the tantrum I threw when I tried to break through the wall. I also tried to think logically, imagining that there must be an end to this hellish network of identical offices and corridors, and so I walked for hours, perhaps even days, until I was physically and emotionally exhausted, my feet ached, and my retinas burned due to the constant glare of the lighting. There was quite literally no end to it, nor was there any discernible pattern or logical layout. Every room, every annex and corridor was identical to the last, and I had no means of making my path with no breadcrumbs to drop. The labyrinth has a way of disorienting you, and so it's nearly impossible to tell whether you've been in a room before or not. For all I knew, I could have been walking in circles all the time only to arrive back in that first room. And the boss was right. Normal, normal rules don't apply in the labyrinth. There's no way to keep track of time. My normal physical needs did not apply. I didn't ink. I didn't eat, drink, shit, piss, or sleep the whole time I was there. Not sleeping was the worst part. I'd got so tired, but I had no respite. I could still feel pain. However, sores on my feet from walking, bruises on my fists from banging the walls, and an endless throbbing migraine caused by the glaring lights and constant electric buzzing. Those first hours and days were hellish and draining, and this was nothing compared to what came. At first, I assumed I was on my own inside the labyrinth, and that was a hell in itself, the isolation and the loneliness. But that was before I encountered the monsters who call the labyrinth home. It would be some time before I saw anything or had any definitive proof of their existence. What I heard were disembodied voices from far distant rooms and unexplained scratching noises from behind the walls. These sounds were unsettling and often frightening, but I could never tell whether they were genuine or not. I began to think I was going insane and these bizarre sounds were the product of my demented mind, but unfortunately that turned out to be wishful thinking. I remember the incident where I first met her. I'd been walking aimlessly for what seemed like hours until I finally collapsed against a wall in exhaustion. I can't say whether it was morning or night, and frankly, I don't give a shit. In that bleak moment, I seriously considered ending my life, but I couldn't think of any practical method of committing suicide. And I doubted whether it would stick in this twisted realm. Even so, I had reached rock bottom and didn't think I could go on. But the thing about the labyrinth is it will always find new ways of fucking with you. And right then, something happened which was completely unprecedented so far. I recall hearing a crackling sound from the ceiling above me, and so I looked up in time to see the fluorescent light strip lights flicker and then go out completely, plunging the corridor into total darkness. 
What the fuck? I swore in frustration as the fear pulsated through me. Now this was darkness unlike anything I'd ever experienced before. So dark that I couldn't see my own hand when I waved it in front of my face. There was no light anywhere, and as far as I knew, the power was down throughout the entire labyrinth. I hoped the outage would only be temporary, but after waiting for what seemed like an eternity, I realized the lights weren't coming back on. I was wondering what the hell I would do when the situation escalated. Suddenly, the banging sound started, a constant drumming on the walls louder than any phantom noises I'd previously heard. I jumped up, now in a state of complete panic. Without the benefit of sight, I tried to focus on that awful din to determine where the noise was coming from, but the banging was all around, drowning me in a terrifying symphony of chaos. And then I heard some screaming, a banshee's wail that echoed through the corridor, soon filling the small darkened room where I cowered. I felt a cold chill and struggled to breathe, desperately feeling the wall as I tried to escape in the pitch black, but suddenly it wasn't dark anymore, not entirely at least. I looked ahead and was horrified to see a pair of blood-red orbs emerging from the darkness, demonic eyes staring right at me. Then another pair appeared, and another, until I found myself the target of two dozen crimson eyes, all filled with malice and murderous intent. I could not see the creatures behind those eyes, but felt sure they were pure evil and meant to do me harm. The screaming started all over again, so loud and piercing that I needed to cover my ears in a vain attempt to drown it out. Those hellish eyes were focused upon me and coming closer. Realizing I was in mortal danger, I panicked and started to run, sprinting in the dark even though I had nowhere to go. The beast, or beasts, pursuing me cried in unison, tearing down the corridor. I could smell each its foul stench and feel its breath on the back of my neck. And then I hit a brick wall, literally. The pain shot through my body as I fell heavily to the floor, losing consciousness as the screaming continued to ring in my ears. By all rights, I shouldn't have woken up, but I did do so in an indeterminable time later, and once again the labyrinth had a surprise in store for me. When I came to, my head was still, still throbbing, but I soon realized that the screaming had stopped and the lights were back on. The unidentified monster I had heard was nowhere to be seen. However, I wasn't alone. The girl looking down upon me had soft, compassionate eyes and a kind smile. Her hair was long and dark her skin the color of milk, and she wore tight jeans and a stylish leather jacket. I think I was attracted to her immediately, although perhaps my feelings were due to the tense situation. It had been some time since I last saw another human being, and after all I'd been through, this young lady seemed like my guardian angel. Hey, how are you feeling? she asked me softly. I'm okay, I think, I replied groggily. My head hurts. How long was I out? Not long, she replied. The labyrinth doesn't let you rest for any length of time. My name's Mary, by the way. Hi, Mary, I'm John, I responded, still not, still not really understanding what was going on. How did you get here, I inquired. Mary shrugged her shoulders. The same way you did, I guess. The vague job advertisement, the creepy guy in the suit offering a big cash prize if you find your way out. Sound familiar? It does, I confirmed. I'm sorry, I didn't realize there was anybody else in here. There are a few of us around, although this place is so big you could wander around forever without seeing another living soul. It was pure chance I found you when I did. I nodded my head, suddenly remembering the terror I'd experienced only moments before. There was something chasing me in the dark, a creature with, a, with many eyes. Mary's mood darkened. I saw the fear in her eyes, and she muttered her reply. It's gone for now, but the beast will be back. Once it gets your scent, it won't stop hunting you. My heart sank as a new fear overtook me and a sense of hopelessness hit me hard. My lips trembled as I asked the next question. 
So what the fuck do we do? She scoffed before replying. We keep on moving, that's what. Keep on running the maze and never lose hope that we can escape. Her bravery was impressive, but I remained skeptical. Do you really think there's a way out? I asked meekly. I saw the spark of defiance in Mary's eyes. She spoke. I know there is, and I'll do whatever it takes to find it. I couldn't argue with this, and so I went with her. I don't know how long we walked together through those seemingly endless corridors and carpeted rooms, but it seemed like an eternity. We grew close during that time, or so I thought. I did feel a connection to Mary, and I trusted her, thinking of the young woman as my savior. There was nothing romantic about our brief relationship, and I don't think anything physical is even possible inside the labyrinth, but her companionship gave me strength at a point when I was ready to give up. She didn't speak much during our time together. I pressed her, asking questions in the hope of finding out more about her background, but Mary would always evade and deflect. In the end, though, the advice Mary gave me about the labyrinth would save my life. Never trust anything you see or hear, she explained. In here, nothing is as it seems. A wall isn't a wall, a door isn't a door. The labyrinth knows how to fuck with your head. It'll give you hope, only to take it away again, keeping you in an endless cycle of suffering and despair. If you want to survive, you'll need to betray your most firmly held beliefs. You'll do things you never thought yourself capable of, and even if you do make it out, you'll likely carry the guilt with you for the rest of your life. I didn't get it at the time, but she was totally correct. I don't remember much about the moments before the attack. Perhaps I should have realized Mary was acting strangely, but I couldn't have predicted what she would do. We were walking down yet another endless corridor of strip lights and damp carpets when suddenly all hell broke loose. I froze to the spot when I heard the banging, soft and distant at first, but soon growling, growing louder and louder, and closer and closer. And then came the flickering of the lights, followed by the hellish banshee, banshee wail. Jesus, I swore. I turned back to Mary, who now stood some distance behind me. It's coming, what should we do? Mary didn't meet my gaze, as she continued to back away, retreating from the coming threat. The lights won't go out this time, she whispered carefully. It likes to show us its true form before consuming its prey. What? I exclaimed in a panic. What do you mean? We need to get out of here. Mary shook her head, and I saw tears forming in her eyes. I'm sorry, John, I really am, but there's no other way. I told you, I'll do whatever it takes to survive. And with that, she turned and ran. I stood there, gobsmacked. It took my panicked brain a moment to comprehend what had just happened. She'd led me into a trap, sacrificing me to the beast so she could survive. Horrified, I turned back towards the corridor and saw the monster for the first time. How can I describe the horror of what I witnessed? The beast's form seemed impossible. It was not one creature, but instead a mind-boggling and hideous combination of human limbs, bodies, and faces. At least a dozen faces and two dozen eyes all filled with pain and anger, while their mouths worked in unison to produce the terrible high-pitched scream which drowned out every other sound. Somehow this monster had absorbed its victims, combining their worst features and impulses to create an abomination. I could never have imagined. I remained frozen to the spot as I watched the monstrosity advance clumsily, but surely, down the narrow corridor. It had many hungry eyes focused upon me. I turned and I ran, exerting every ounce of strength in my body while the beast chased after me. Mary was quick, but not fast enough, as it turned out, because I soon caught up with her. What happened next will haunt me now for the rest of my days. Acting on a primal instinct, I grabbed her roughly by the shoulders, ignoring her screams, and I used all my strength to physically throw her backwards, straight into the path of the charging monster. 
I glanced back momentarily, long enough to see Mary on the floor, reaching out and pleading for help before the beast devoured her. And like a coward, I ran and kept running until the screams faded and I considered myself safe. It took some time for me to recover from the attack and come to terms with what I'd done. But of course, I was still trapped inside the labyrinth and still in mortal danger. I remembered what Mary had told me. I'll do whatever it takes to survive. Boy, was she telling the truth. But that wasn't the only thing she said to me. Remember, nothing is as it seems in the labyrinth. A door isn't a door. A wall isn't a wall. I considered this cryptic advice. It made no sense in the real world, but... Real world rules did not apply here. What the hell, I thought. So I walked into the next identical office room, put my face against the wall, closed my eyes, and let my body fall. By rights, I should have banged my head against the bricks, but instead I kept falling until my face hit soft carpet. Astonished, I lifted my head and found myself back where it all started, the comfortable study adorned with oak furniture and heated by a blazing open fire. And above me stood the enigmatic boss in his tailored suit, his thin smile now transformed into a wide grin. He genuinely looked very happy to see me, as he held out his hand to help me to my feet. Well done, Mr. Smith, you made it and I never doubted you. I accepted his hand with suspicion, wondering if this wasn't just another mind fuck of the labyrinth. I don't know what you did, but somehow you've beaten the labyrinth, an impressive feat indeed. I experienced a wave of immense relief, as I dared to believe this might actually be real. You mean I can go? I asked meekly. Of course you can, he answered amicably. I am a man of my word, after all, and oh, I almost forgot. With that, he walked to his desk and pulled out a briefcase. There's still the matter of your compensation. He popped open the case to reveal stacks of crisp green bills. I trust 100,000 U.S. dollars will suffice? I looked at the money in astonishment, not knowing what to say. I didn't feel like I deserved the reward, and part of me wanted to tell this twisted old bastard to go fuck himself, but again, I was weak. All right, thanks, I mumbled, taking the briefcase while avoiding eye contact. The old man insisted on shaking my hand nonetheless, continuing to smile as he led me to the door. Congratulations again, Mr. Smith, and good luck. And that's it. That's my story, for what it's worth. The money allowed me to pay off my debts and achieve some degree of financial security. But the horrors I experienced in the labyrinth continue to haunt my nightmares, and I don't think I'll ever recover from what I suffered inside that shitty maze. I still carry the guilt with me, knowing that I sacrificed Mary's life to save my own skin, but it's her words that stuck with me. To survive, you'll do things you never thought yourself capable of, and you'll carry it with you for the rest of your life. Once again, she was right. I'm glad to be out, and really do have a new appreciation for life. But what I did, and what I did to survive, has changed me, and the nightmares of that beast will never end, because now Mary is a part of the monstrous form, doomed to crash around the labyrinth for all eternity. My final advice to you is not fall into some trap. If you see a mysterious advertisement online or in the back pages of your local newspaper, don't answer it. Believe me, it's not worth it. I was lucky, but the chances are you won't be. Take care, friends, and stay safe. Having a child was the most miraculous thing I've ever experienced. When Ken and I left the hospital, I was glowing. But after a few months, the novelty wore off. 
the screaming, the diapers. Blah. Let's face it, nobody has time to raise a kid. I realized after my third child, I hated kids. It's not like you can legally kill them anymore. We're at our wit's end. I'm miserable. Raising children has cut into my life of doing chop, taking exercise classes, and sleeping with my husband's friends. What do I do? You need a nanny. All parents need a helping hand now and then, sometimes full time. At Hampshire Nannies Limited, all of our nannies were trained by professionals in England. Your little darlings are our priority. If they act up, they'll be punished properly. None of this time out or ghosted in the corner business. We'll bring your children up in the classic English manner by making them learn Latin and beating them half to death in a single sex environment. Discipline gave us an empire. What's more important? Your happiness or your children's future? Call Hampshire Nannies today. Say it with me. I need a nanny. I'll bang the nanny. That's right. You need a nanny. Hampshire Nannies. Oh, kids. You look like we're going to another funeral. Dad, we're bored. You teach your children a lot of good American values, but have you taught them how to have fun? For family entertainment that doesn't stop, head on over to the Starfish Resort and Casino in Las Venturas. You deserve this kind of fun. Water slides, shooting range, and the kids love the Giggle Dome. I'm wacky. Plus, we've got the hottest gaming in town. Nobody offers you more gaming value. And you'll teach the kids some important life lessons about real capitalism. <laughs> Dad, I lost all my money. You've learned a valuable lesson. Son, it's time for your first lap dance. <laughs> yeah, guns! Time is meaningless in the land of tomorrow. It's the Starfish Resort and Casino Hotel in Las Venturas. Mom can go all night on the one-armed bandits while the kids visit the Little Tykes Pawn Shop. How'd you do, Charisse? I busted myself and sold a kidney. That's my girl. Share the love with your family, the love of money, and the Starfish Resort and Casino has the best buffet in Las Venturas, featuring our world-famous bacon trough. The Starfish Resort and Casino. This kind of fun should be illegal. All right, squad. This next story is called The Cursed Brass Bell of Trussville. I'll show you my cursed brass bells, you fucking dirty bitch. Anyway, okay, uh, the following is the history of the Brass Bell of Trussville, as I have come to understand it. I am remiss to admit that I have not been able to determine its origin, nor do I know how it came to reside in the rural farmhouse inherited by Daniel Hopkins in 1867. While typically I would continue my investigation of the item before parting with it, I have begun to hear ringing at night, and I fear that I will soon suffer further symptoms if I do not part with the accursed thing. That being said, its history is as follows. The Bell's first victim, Daniel Hopkins, 1842-1869, cause of death, suicide. In June of 1867, Daniel Hopkins inherited a rural farmhouse in Trussville, Alabama from his grandparents. Reports indicate nothing abnormal regarding his grandparents' passing, but I have not been able to ascertain the specific cause of their death. Oh, come on, man, it's 1840-something. They probably died of natural causes, which was cholera, typhus, or died of extreme old age at 22. At the time, Daniel was the owner of a small carpentry business and a prominent member of the community. He had been happily married for six years and had two beautiful children, a boy and a girl. Happily married for six years, so his wife had just turned 18. <laughs> I'm disgusting. Although he owned a lovely home in town, after inheriting the farmhouse, he began spending nights away from his family. These nights away became more and more frequent. By November of 1868, Daniel was spending weeks at a time alone at the farmhouse. 
He had grown distant from his family and stopped operating his business altogether. His wife, Sarah, wrote that his face had grown gaunt and sallow, that he had lost weight, and that he constantly complained of headaches, for which he blamed on the incessantly ringing bell which nobody else ever heard. Honestly, just, this just sounds like, like severe meth addiction. In December of 1868, Daniel was found dead in the farmhouse. He had hung himself in the guest room, the same room which just so happened to house the brass bell. The bell's second victim, Timothy Hopkins, 1863-1870, cause of death, apparent suicide. Timothy Hopkins was six years old at the time of his father's suicide. In her diary, Sarah Hopkins noted that her son had taken the brass bell for himself and that he kept it on his nightstand. She did not appear to think anything abnormal of the bell. She writes that Timothy began to spend most of his time alone in his room. He became moody and easily agitated, and he began to complain of headaches. Sarah attributed this change in behavior to her husband's passing. Her child was struggling with the death of his father, as any child would. Sarah's diary notes that he complained of a ringing bell and that he frequently spoke of a gray lady whispering to him in his sleep. Three months after his father's death, six-year-old Timmy was found dead outside the family home. The boy had leapt from his bedroom window in the middle of the night. The bell's third victim, John Tambor, 1845-1884, cause of death, suicide. After the passing of both her husband and her son, Sarah Hopkins lived as a widow and a single mother in Trustville for many years. Her daughter married in 1882 and moved into her husband's home, and Sarah remarried in 1884 to John Tambor, a neighbor. Once the two moved in together, her husband became distant and began suffering from the same symptoms as her first husband and her departed son, the incessant ringing of a bell, headaches, and the voice of the gray woman whispering to him at night. That very year, Sarah Hopkins found her husband dead, hanging from the same rafters in the farmhouse as her first husband. On the nightstand, inexplicably, was the brass bell. This is when Sarah, in her diary, first writes that the bell is cursed. She left the item in the farmhouse, where she swore to never return. Sarah Hopkins died of natural causes in her home, of, in, her home in June of 1911. The bell's fourth victim, Ashton Montclair. 2001 to 2016, cause of death, suicide. After the passing of Sarah Hopkins' second husband, the farmhouse in rural Trustville obtained a reputation of being haunted. The property became stigmatized and remained untouched for over a century. In October of 2016, 15-year-old Ashton Montclair broke into the abandoned farmhouse with his girlfriend so they could find a place to fuck. As later reported by his girlfriend, they were becoming intimate when he suddenly turned pale and became frantic. He asked her if she heard a bell and became transfixed on the upstairs guest room. When she went to check on him, she found Ashton dead, having cut his own throat. The bell's fifth victim, Stuart Bonham, 1991-2020, cause of death, suicide. In January of 2020, a home inspector was ass assessing the farmhouse when he discovered the dead body of Stuart Bonham, a homeless man who had a criminal history of substance abuse. Bonham had hung himself in the same room as the others. Many years ago, I heard the tale of a haunted farmhouse in Trussville, Alabama, but only this year found the time to visit. I was in the guest room when I noticed the brass bell sitting quietly on the guest room nightstand collecting dust. Locals argued that the farmhouse is haunted, that it is what mysteriously took the lives of those five poor souls. However, I am of the opinion that it's the brass bell which carries the curse. 
I took the trinket for myself, as always, excited to discover its secrets. As noted previously, I do not know from where the brass bell originates, why the men around it, why the men around it have heard the ringing, or who the gray lady might be, but the coincidences are uncanny. I hate to part with the artifact before I learn more, but I must admit I have not been sleeping well these past few months, and sometimes in the middle of the night I hear the faint ringing in my study. Thank you for reading this tall tale, and I wish you all the best. Sincerely, J.W. Smithworth. And uh, if you want to buy the Brass Bell, you can do so by checking out J.W. Smithworth's Etsy site, where the Brass Bell is indeed for sale. And on that spooky note, spooky squad, I bid you adieu. That's a uh, goodbye in French, I believe. Might mean eat up or something, but whatever. Thank you all for listening, and until next time, which will be tomorrow, stay spooky, you creepy motherfuckers. <laughs>